Good afternoon and welcome to the latest episode of our Property Perspective. Today I'm speaking with Michael Shu, who's the joint head of our valuations business in Victoria. Michael was one of the authors or co-authors along with the research team of our Outlook report and he set out a number of interesting views on how the investment landscape has shifted in recent years, how this market cycle is different from previous market cycles and all of which are topics close to my heart. And so I thought it'd be an interesting chance to talk through all that with Michael. But before we get to that, just given that Michael's based in Melbourne, it's been a very challenging few months there. I might ask you, how are you getting on, mate? How is How are you placed in terms of return to work? I am so thrilled to be back in the office. I never realised what a uh, people person I am. And I don't believe that it's the end of office by any shape, any chance. I think we will see fads come and go, as they always do. And admittedly, it won't be like it was, and we'll be working from home, but people will not be working from home permanently in the office. I just It may work for some very small parts of the economy, but largely it won't. We wait and see. Indeed, we do wait and see, as we would both acknowledge. I think there's more uncertainty now, particularly around demand and and where does that come back? And Mm. you've felt that more keenly in Melbourne, given that you've spent a bit more time out of the office. But I imagine that having had all those months at home, that the novelty probably wore off somewhat toward the tail end of that period. Would I be right? Yeah, I think people in Melbourne have really got a chance to experience it. I think though they are also still in a state of shock from having gone through it. And, you know, you've got this exodus going on outside of Melbourne into into country towns, people buying houses. They seem to think that they'll be working from home forever, some of them, but the employers and productivity is going to come into play and they may well be asked to come back. And if you've sold your house and you've moved to Bright, that may be problematic. So it's a, just an amazing time. Population moves in waves and backwards and forwards. It's just a fascinating time to be in real estate. I, I think the population themselves is still getting used to getting on public transport, and I think the more they get on it and the more they realise you, that you don't catch COVID on public transport. I think there was, in New South Wales, during the experience there, there was only one case on a bus. But I think the population here has been quite shocked by the experience of being locked down for roughly nine months and having a skyrocketing infection rate. Uh, that they're going to take a little while to come back, but I think ultimately they will. It's a confidence thing. Indeed. Moving on to the all-important topic of the office market, I mean, Melbourne's a market that has seen probably historically quite a lot of centralisation and has seen a stronger run of demand, both in gross and net terms. It's seen stronger population and employment growth, so all of the indicators have been pointing in the right direction. And as you point out, all of a sudden we've seen a huge shock to that. And that's causing a lot of uncertainty around occupier markets. Melbourne's mm. seen its share of market cycles. And mm. so we're all aware of some of the risks to demand and the uncertainty around that when that comes back. But I think what, what you drew out in your article in the Outlook and indeed what we'll talk through today is some of the important offsets to that, which make this experience that we're going through different in that while we've seen for different reasons, of course, the cycles are always different. We've seen different forms of disruption to the economy and hence the occupy market over over the years. But this time, the capital market's landscape's quite different. And you set out a, a number of reasons, which I would generally agree with. I mean, the first of those is the low interest rate environment, 
we have seen actually in recent weeks, we've seen a bit of an uptick in the 10-year bond, a bit above 1.5%. It had dipped below 1%, but regardless of that uptick, it's still incredibly low. So why don't you give us your feel of how big a difference is that compared to your lengthy market experience and what you were seeing around the time of the GFC and indeed going back uh, before that to the 90s? Well, bond rate volatility is nothing more than bond, bond market players making money. And you look for a long-term trend, and this moving up between one and a half or even one to two percent, it's it's a nearly 100 percent change. So it feels like a lot, and there's probably quite a few people lost a lot of money in the bond market recently. But the property market looks to long-term returns and doesn't slavishly follow these this volatility, and until there's a real trend. Now, if we look at what bonds are, you know, return, sovereign capital, it's inflation plus risk, and we're in the great deflationary era. AI is creating deflation because it's creating undercapacity in the employment world. People's jobs are going to get changed and lost, and this means employment growth and wages are not going to be under any real pressure for years and years and years, and that means that inflation will be you know, intrinsically low has been for ages. So we wait to see if we're all wrong, but, you know, there's intrinsic undercapacity in the in the workforce and AI will actually continue to create that. So that's a long-term trend. And that's why I think that we are in a deflationary era. Well, I think certainly the evidence over the past five years has been, if not, that's not deflationary over the full period, but certainly lowflationary, if you like, <laughs> not, not a term, but... Low inflation and that we've been well below 2% for some time. And I think even even after the uptick we've seen in, in bond yields over the past few weeks, it would still be the case that you're probably looking at a negative real return in that if you've got a low nominal return and you've got an inflation rate, which has come, come back a bit. And of course, there'll be different views around where it's heading, but it seems a stretch to think that we're going to jump back into the, the target. Man, the RBA certainly thinks that we've got some way to go and the underlying dynamics around wage growth would support that view that it's going to be a bit challenging to get it up to the mark, let alone above it. So that means we've got negative real returns. And so I imagine that what you would see the market, the, the investors that you're dealing with, they must be bringing down their required returns. Whether they admit that or not is another question, but they must, in the back of their minds, be lowering those targets. Whilst they don't admit it, no one actually says you're wrong when you say your expectation of a 6.5% IRR is unrealistic and you won't buy property, no one debates it. And then they all nod and no one says yes, but no one says no. Everyone knows. And if the bond rate's between zero and one and long-term property risk is four, IRR should be at between five and six, really. And, you know, really the six and six, six and a bit we're seeing right now is just pricing in this risk that the, uh, in, you know, incomes, property incomes, wages, everyone's incomes, the, the economy's incomes could come under pressure as things sort them out, sort things out during this period. So anyway, go, going back to what you're saying about low inflation period, is that you know, this is the first time that capital has no alternative. You, know, you, you can't put your money in at zero to one or even two if you're an insurer and make enough money to offset the cost of the risk that you've got to provide for in the future. You know, Pension funds, all of them, they're all under pressure and hence they have been in cash. It's just not an alternative and this is why in most corrections there becomes a capital vacuum in the share market or in property because cash is an alternative, and cash, you know, since 1969 
has been at every single recession, 75, 77, 88, 89, 92, then 2006, 7, sat between 6 and 12%. And now it's between 0 and 1. It's simply not an alternative. And this is what's kept the market alive. And there's no capital vacuum. And then you add in that, um, we'll talk about debt in a moment, but you now that the population has taken their money out of cash and put it with non-bank lenders and all sorts of other investments instead of going to cash. And that's what this low interest rate market does. Creates capital. That's right. And you've touched there on, uh, well, the dynamic from an equity investor. They're looking at alternative asset classes and they're finding it difficult to, to find high income source of capital. And that's why real assets generally and, and real estate in particular uh, has tended to take on a rising share of most multi-asset portfolios. You mentioned that we're going to come on to debt because for an equity investor, the what they can get in bond markets has implications as a comparator, if you like, for a debt investor for leveraged into property. It has a more, more direct impact on the cost of capital. Of course, what we saw 10 years ago was a very different dynamic where it was well, by definition a financial crisis, which means debt is difficult to obtain, but we've seen a very different response this time around. How, how are you seeing that play out? Well, what normally happens in these periods is when you have a correction, market runs scared, and every non-bank lender comes under redemption pressure, as does a number of syndicators. None of that's happened because it wasn't worth taking your money away from your investment in the syndicator because you had no better place to put it. And in fact, the non-bank lenders are overrun with capital, both global mandate, because we are a global world now. It's, it's so global and we are so transparent and so attractive on, on that measure alone that the non-bank lenders, there are now more non-bank lenders today, probably by tenfold, than there were a year ago. It has moved up that fast. And big, intelligent money like insurance is getting into it. And in fact, non-bank lenders are becoming cheaper and they're now becoming a competitor to the bank. So this is the first time we have had a correction where there is constant, foreseeable, available debt. Now, it might be priced a little differently, but you have a correction when, and you have distressed sales when you have no debt available. And we've got to see debt available. And this is why it's such a new world, and this is why you know, property yields are more likely to fall because of this availability of capital sloshing around the marketplace with equity. And it seems to me that, over the past year condition, and it is this in clear contrast with what you would have seen 10 years ago, that it's become a bit more attractive for some to look at launching a debt fund because two or three years ago when Sydney and Melbourne across office and industrial, the return on equity investment was very strong. We were achieving double-digit returns right across the board and a debt fund at that time would clearly be a much lower risk proposition, but a much lower return proposition, whereas now people are perhaps thinking, right, maybe I might want to diversify. One of the ways to do that is to launch a debt fund. And so it's interesting that, as, as you say, that's resulting in a huge amount a huge amount of capital, which probably means we'll see less distressed sales coming through, given that, that debt appetite. What do you think? I, I think the potential for distressed sales becoming a an effector of the market, you know, because in downturns generally the distressed sales are the beginning of the market correction and they make the market, there won't be enough distressed sales around for that to occur. There's going to be distressed sales because as we move through this period, 
there's always people who make mistakes on income, who make mistakes on get too excited about the development side of the market. The development side of the market is going to be at its most volatile for the next two years because of the population issues that we face. We've got no population growth. We've sailed through because normally we have about 300 to 350,000 people riding the population growth story that is Australia every year. They're out of it, but we've had 450,000 people come back with money. And that has kept our growth alive and it's been healthy for retail and housing and it's had a huge impact. But at some point, we're going to meet that middle point where we've got no population growth and everyone who's coming back has come back. Unless the vaccine is nicely timed, but I've got my doubts all these things will fall into place. Well, that's right. There is, as we said at the outset, there's a lot of uncertainty there. It does seem we're in the, uh, well, we're in the early stages of what seems a very strong economic recovery, but the questions around employment and office occupation are going to be there uh, for some time. Uh, Those are global questions, though, where we've got those questions in Australia. We see them globally, notwithstanding all that uncertainty. Australia still looks very attractive. And we continue to see a lot of global capital coming into the market. In during the course of 2020, 70% of the large deals in the market, the very large 100 million plus deals, went to overseas buyers. Um, that's a record share. Some of our local institutions were a bit more cautious last year, having really been going toe to toe with the global players and in, in, in many cases taking a lot of those deals in recent years. But in 2020, they were a bit quieter. We saw a lot of global capital coming into the market from new sources as well. I know Melbourne saw that, but what did you notice that that struck you during 2020 in terms of that weight of demand? Well, there is no question that the market has a, not everyone in the market, but enough players in the market believe that the future of the Melbourne CBD is quite sound because they've put their money down. You can't say that a collection of the amount of capital that's put in is all foolish. So there's been some very significant investments by, you know, largely overseas money, making some huge bets in Melbourne at 5% yields. Admittedly, when you look through it, they have had whales which work through the next two years. So their their income is protected for the next two years because they've got the, the tenant covenants are there and their government, they're not exposed. So there's probably... Investment yields for that sort of stock have definitely held up. And I suppose that was surprising in the context of how things were looking. And I suppose we're only here to read the market. We don't make it. And it, it's clear that there is sufficient capital that is a believer in this market in the long term. And they're, I think they're just accepting short-term volatility for the next two or three years as part of the, part of the story. But they've got no better place to put the money in. It seems attractive in the long term. They're prepared to take the risk as well that maybe if their return, they go in at 5% and ultimately it's 4 it's still a lot better than a whole lot of other alternatives. Yes, and I think that they, uh, well, by definition, some of the big global players, they've got global portfolios and they'll have long-standing relationships with major tenants across all of the major global gateway markets mm-hmm. around the world and... I think the, those relationships, the deep relationships they've got with tenants and with corporates mean that they know that 
there's going to be continued strong demand for the best quality space and that volatility is to be expected. We've had, goes without saying, an extraordinary event over the past year that no one would have foreseen, but taking a long-term view, you know that there's going to be some disruption and market cycle playing out along the way, but I think they take great confidence in that their lived experience of what they have seen and, and the continued strong demand for the best quality office space. In terms of how that plays out, though, I think we would both agree that demand at the better end of the market not only has held up well, but can be expected to continue to be very strong. But do you see shifting attitudes in terms of how investors are looking at, at secondary space? There's been no, almost no secondary transactions occur. Those who have got them are probably too afraid to put them on the market. We are used to seeing for the last 10 years a very consistent yield pattern across most sectors. This time we're going to see huge variations. You know, a 2% difference between a prime cap rate and a secondary property cap rate will be no surprise to me. You know, as we move into vacancy and also as we move into the market becoming very selective because it has the supply to do so. So these things will mean We just haven't seen where these yields are. We can suspect where they are but there's no doubt there's going to be this huge diversification happening, and that will be in the retail market, obviously, as well, for the same reasons. And I think it, you're, you're right, it will take some time to play out. Trading volumes will be thin, but at the better end, I think we'd expect a more active year. I think we can look ahead with some confidence, given what's going on in the wider economy. I think we're aware that it'll take some time for that better mood to sort of start to permeate through. This is the year of the believer versus the non-believer in the market. And the non-believers are going to go to the market and take their capital out and the believers will put it in and we'll see who's right. But you would think that those who are concerned about the office market are looking at the capital and its veracity to buy at the present time and they're there to take advantage of it. You know, if they don't believe that this work from home is a fad, I think it is, but everyone's got their view and we're going to see certain players take a position that they think it's a good time to get out, and it might be. Thinking of the investment landscape more widely, it's been widely reported and commented on in in the press and in research pieces, the strength of industrial and how investors have been perhaps looking to scale up exposure to that, perhaps as a direct reflection of some of the challenges in retail. How do you see the next few years evolving But for new sectors? I mean, thinking of some of the new things that we see in emerging in Melbourne, we see, for instance, quite a bit of activity in the, in the, in the build-to-rent space. And Australia has been a, a late adopter, if you like, but there's, there's a potential for that to scale up quite quickly, it seems. There seems to be a lot of activity in Melbourne. I, I wonder whether... Uh, you have views on which of those are likely to, to benefit and, and, and what you're seeing in terms of appetite for new sectors? Well, I think you know, the new economy you know, is we're always in a world of transition and data centres is a place that fits perfectly with the rest of the world and where the economy is going and where people are going. So that asset class even two years ago was very foreign. And, and now we're going to see people just diving into it. I can't say that you know, I'd say there's a particular class that you'll, you'll say this is going to take off, except be unsurprised about anything that involves our new digital lives that has now sped up beyond our expectation. And the speed that it's happening at in the next five years just means that there will be new property types take on that look foreign and look strange to old campaigners like myself. And yet, so long as they align to the economy and where people are going, they will be the place to be. And I'd be unafraid, so long as you believe that the old-fashioned facts of property, can you replace that tenant 
if they leave or if they go broke, can that income stream be replaced by another one? So long as those facts remain, then it'll be worth putting your money into it. And at the same time, there is going to be losers. We are in a transitionary period. This is why I talk about this difference in yields and a, well, you know, deflation's a dirty word, but okay. A low wage growth world, a low income growth world is there are some real potential car crashes going to occur as we move through, as you see something that is always a cause for danger in property, which is change of use. You know, there are some retail centres that won't be retail centres in five years' time. Some supermarkets are riskier than others. We'll wait to see. And as we've both, I think, alluded to through the course of the conversation, some different types of office space in different locations will fare better. We've been in a market which has been, was broadly moving in one, in a one way positive direction, secondary offices included up until a year ago, but now we've got more of a changing dynamic. The sectors that we've mentioned there, whether it's data centres, built to rent, healthcare, they're benefiting from a demographic tailwind. And I think what they have in common with good quality prime office property is that continued demand for space and hence secure income and that's where we'll see the capital heading. I think that's been an excellent conversation. I think we will no doubt continue. We speak often. I hope um, that our, our audience has found that interesting. I'd like to thank you, Michael, for your thoughts and draw the podcast to a close. Thank you very much. Thank you.